Hello, this is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia with a message for all those that are hungry and thirsty for reality. To find ultimate meaning and purpose and destiny in their lives. And for all of you who are new, I want to briefly refer you to my website at ultimatemeaning.com where you will find a flip book and in the flip book you will discover there are many places with red print those are links to youtube videos that are very profound and amazing that highly confirm the reality of what i am sharing here and what i am sharing about is the one true eternal God, the ultimate perfection and manifestation of love, actually the very source of love and of all life and goodness, the very source of reality. I am sharing these messages as it commands in 1 Peter 4.11. It says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And that is what I will seek to do, is to speak as the oracles of God. This is more clearly amplified and understood in Revelations 19.10, which says, Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When we worship God in spirit and in truth, out of a pure heart and humility, out of great love and reverence for God, we are filled with a spirit in an overflow beyond ourselves that can result in creative utterances coming forth that are from the Spirit of God. In other words, we begin to speak prophetically or as the oracles of God. And so out of a heart set and a mindset of worship, I will seek to do that here. Yes, 1 Peter 4.11 says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And in the early church, in the very beginning, as is described in the New Testament, when they came together, there was total liberty and freedom for each member in that gathering to speak as they sensed the Spirit of God rising up within them to speak forth whatever they were led to speak. If one had a song, I know I've been in a church service in the past where they allowed this kind of freedom. And if one had a song, well, you might not know the words. I have that happen many times where I sense the Spirit of God rising up in me and I only had a little seed thought of what God was impressing on me and I began to sing it out and it became a beautiful Song, and I've had the experience a good number of times where there's even been poetry in the song. And so, the same. Another one might have a word of encouragement, a word of exhortation, or a word of prophecy, or a word of knowledge. We are to function in the gifts of the Spirit. We are to always seek to allow God to speak through us, especially when we gather together. And yet, you will find the leaders in the typical church today do not even seek to facilitate that in the slightest. And not even allow the congregation to move in the gifts of the Spirit. you got to ask permission to use a mic. 
if you're going to let God move through his body, you don't put any control restraints on it. You don't worry about a mess. If there's a mess, God will take care of it. You allow God to move as he will. And part of the message that I am giving is to wake up the body of Christ. They become everything God has called them to be because in these last days, it is on to Jesus Christ that will be the gathering of the people. And so we should be more conscious of Christ in our midst when we're coming together than some program or the people up at the front that oftentimes in many typical charismatic Pentecostal or otherwise churches are completely insensitive to the leading of the Spirit of God. But God in these last days will fulfill John 17 and bring about an amazing oneness that certainly will mean that we in our local, local gatherings no longer in any way will limit or inhibit the fullness of the headship of Christ from inhabiting the local corporate body. I have a book on Amazon titled God Headship and Body Invasion. And that book is about 250 some odd pages that in outline format, which goes into you know many in-depth, I could show you the book here. I wasn't planning to do this. It doesn't always show up on a chroma screen background that great, but that's the kind of format there is in the book. And it gives many practical suggestions. It also goes into depth into the oneness in Ephesians and, and into tongues and many other things that are important, uh, pointing out different false teachings that are creeping in to different evangelical churches and so on and so forth. And so today, I want to share with you that when I begin to preach here and seek to speak out of the Spirit of God. That I do facilitate that by casting lots to get the possibility of any chapter in the Bible by using two independent random applications. And of course, the casting of the lot and the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord as mentioned in Proverbs 16.33 and it was used extensively by in the pre-Christ scriptures by all, all of Israel. Um, I mean, you've got Moses using it. you got Joshua, Solomon, King David. It, it was used extensively. It was used by the early church to choose the apostle who would take the place of Judas that betrayed Christ, and probably a lot more. It was used extensively by powerful movements of revival in church history, like the Moravians, that even chose their own wives. When you do this, when you're walking right with God and holiness and purity, and you do this with reverence, God can use this. He may not be calling you to do it, and if you do it and you're not right with God, I warn you not to use it, because then it would be divination. But what I am sharing here, I am sharing, and the chapters that have been chosen have been chosen by God today to share. And so I want to go ahead and share with you uh, those two chapters. 
I only spend a half an hour meditating on them and then I speak. This time I'm speaking really late at night. Normally I do it immediately after or after I have a meal. This is way later. It's already 9.46 in the evening on January the 21st, Saturday of 2023. First of all, though, there is a worship song. And so I want to go ahead with that worship song, first of all. So we will now play that worship song. So I'm going to bring that up now in a moment here. We will get that worship song. And so this is the worship song that we're going to sing today with.
indeed the message today I got by the casting of Lot, Ephesians, pardon me, not Ephesians, John 17, and Nehemiah 7. <clears throat> and when I do these things by the casting of Lot, there is always a common theme, because God is faithful to bear witness with what he is wanting to speak through his servants by his spirit to the churches, to all those that have ears to hear what he is wanting to say at this particular time. And let us remember that the word of God says in Matthew 25 towards the end, it says, blessed is that servant whom his Lord when he cometh shall find so doing. Doing what? Giving the sheep their meat in due season. In other words, speaking as I mentioned, what God is saying by his spirit in his timing under his leading. So today, I want to go into, first of all, John 17, and then Nehemiah chapter 7. Actually, I think I will touch on Nehemiah chapter 7 first, though, because I did get Nehemiah 7 first in the first application, although I wrote it down the opposite for some reason here. Now, before I touch on this, I do want to point out that I did have a message yesterday, which I gave, which also had a very common theme in it. And that was from 2 Corinthians 1 and Revelations 12 on the secret of overcoming all things. Uh, and I won't go into that, but I didn't speak on what I had gotten the day before that on Thursday, where I cast lots and I received Joshua 24 and 2 Samuel 6. And I have here written the very obvious theme between these two chapters is on the holiness of God and in particular on reciprocating the holiness of God in a life of worship that manifests liberty and freedom. And I was really wanting to preach on this message. I want to just touch on it here as I really am limited in the amount of time on this video, although most of my messages end up being around, for some reason, 47 minutes long. And I forgot to put the timer on this time, but that's okay. That happens from time to time. So, in Joshua, we have the account that is very important for us to understand, and I think I'll read it. And Joshua said unto the people, Ye cannot serve the Lord, for he is an holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions, nor your sins, if ye forsake the Lord and serve strange gods. Then he will turn and do you hurt and consume you after that he hath done you good. And this understanding of God not forgiving their sins here is in the sense that they would pay the price of God's judgment. And obviously that is the case. Even if God does forgive his servants like he did King David, he still, though he was forgiven, suffered the consequences that were declared that would happen to him, which did by the prophet, where he would experience 
bloodshed in his life and, and loss and it also would experience a lot of betrayal of women turning on his back, which happened under the reign of, not the reign, but under the rebellion of Absalomon. But he goes on to say here, And the people said unto Joshua, Nay, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said unto the people, Ye are witnesses against yourselves that ye have chosen you, the Lord, to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore put away. So Joshua is aware that they're secretly worshiping all these idols and hiding them in their tents. So he says, Now therefore put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you, and incline your heart unto Yahweh, which is what it is in the original. And the word God in the original is Elohim, which means the Almighty's one, Father and Holy Spirit. So it's basically saying, Yahweh, or the ultimate reality, the Almighty's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he's saying, incline your heart unto Yahweh, the Almighty's of Israel. Incline your heart. Acknowledge that God is severe on any form of idolatry. That he is severe to judge in our lives, even as believers. And it is good that he is severe, but many of us can get focused upon the suffering in the world and the suffering in our own lives and wonder why God, when we've been obeying God our lives, are going through all these different trials. But the word of God says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. And so when we learn to trust God through the trials, instead of panicking, we're broken in like a horse that finally finds a place of peace and liberty and purpose in their lives. And so we go on to read here in 2 Samuel about the holiness of God as well. And this is the well-known historical account of the ark of God that David began to take from the house of Uzzah or not Uzzah, but from the house of um, made, I don't think I have here who's the, oh, the name of the person's house that it was taken from. I didn't paste that in. But, and when they came to Nacor's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God smote him there for his heir. And there he died by the ark of God. Oh, God isn't a God of anger. Not in the New Testament, brothers and sisters. Oh, no, he's a God of love. He's not a God of anger. Oh, no, God doesn't get angry at sin. Oh, really? What did he do to Ananias and Sapphira? When they came before Peter and lied to the Holy Spirit, they were smitten dead. God's anger is pure because his love has integrity and his love is the agape love, the love that always chooses the highest lasting good over any lesser choice. It may accompany the lesser filial love, which is the emotional love of feeling, but it may not necessarily be that that is with the greater agape love. 
The greater agape love, independent of feeling, always chooses the highest lasting good. And any lesser choice obviously would have a measure of corruption in it. So God's love, his agape love that is so integrous and pure, is a blazing fire of judgment against all that is contrary to his agape love, the highest and purest form of love. For God is agape love. God is agape. God's love is first holy. It is pure. It will not tolerate what is contrary to love, which contains corruption, which is sin. So the severity of God's love and its integrity is to be viewed as good. But here King David became afraid of God and for a season had a wrong perception of God because of this incident where Uzzah was smitten because they lacked the reverence in carrying that ark. They lacked that reverence. And it is a great thing that is lacking in the body of Christ today. It is the genuine fear of God, which is a very positive and wonderful thing because it views God as totally pure in his love, that he will not tolerate sin. That ensures that there can be a destiny where there's no corruption in heaven forever. That ensures that he has our most best good in his intent in whatever suffering we go through. And we can trust him. But like Job, when we're in trials many times, we cry out and we mouth off and throw a temper tantrum or whatever and try to justify ourselves before God because of the trial we're going through. But God reminded Job of his creativity by showing him through in the whirlwind the power of his creativity because he wanted Job to know that he could trust him, that he was creative as a potter, as a skillful artificer over his life to make him eventually into someone far better than he was, that in measure was in his own righteousness at that time. And it took that trial to bring him out of his own righteousness as it did with Peter when he denied the Lord and he went out and wept bitterly because he needed to be broken of his own righteousness to enter into the righteousness of Christ, even though he had already been deeply converted so that he had the revelation that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach. We read here, and David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perizazah, meaning um, the breaking forth upon Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of Yahweh that day because he began to have, in some measure, a wrong perception of God as Cain ended up having because Cain became in some measure bitter and unthankful because of the suffering he saw around him and in his own life so that God was in some measure an enigma to him so that he began to perceive him as some 
ultimate power that one had to appease by our own righteousness and our own works. He perceived God as like a tyrant. And then from that is when, that is what we call idolatrous monotheism. And out of that also can easily spring polytheism because then like in a modern term, we can say, well, maybe there's other ultimate powers. Maybe God is just a space creature, right? Oh yeah, maybe, maybe we're just, maybe this is some space creature that came to the earth and came on Mount Sinai and came down in a devouring flower. Do you know that some of the top theologians in the Catholic Church sincerely believe that Jesus Christ is a super intelligent space creature and they write about it and they have an enormous, gigantic telescope in the United States, what you which you can see on my website at loverealize.com. If you go down on the side under one of the links, which is probably on deception or something like that, where they're going right to that big, enormous telescope where they talk about UFOs all the time there and of how they see them because they got all these special systems to trace them and everything on this enormous telescope. And so there is perceptions of God that are distorted that allows for great deception to come in these last days so that if sometime in the near future some UFO lands in front of the Vatican and some space creatures come out and say, oh, we, or someone comes out and says, I'm Jesus Christ. Well, some people will fall for that. But if we know a genuine relationship with God, because we truly have the genuine, chosen to enter into the genuine fear of God by a genuine turning in our heart that is in alignment with our conscience because we've not allowed our conscience to be seared by the teachings of man and vain philosophies, then we will enter in to a place of victory in our lives over the deceptions that can creep into our lives when we become bitter and unthankful through testings and trials and the whole world suffers. The question is whether in our suffering we will learn to allow God to be creative as he is to turn that suffering and that pain and that pressure into making us a vessel that is beautiful, allowed without mar in the clay to be made unto his honor and glory and praise into a pointed time of great beauty. And so David, yes, he was afraid of God, but he saw that the house of Obadiban Obed, was blessed when he turned over to leave the ark there. And then, of course, he realized the holiness of God is good. It ensures that there will be a place where there's no corruption. It ensures that if we acknowledge and reverence God and have that genuine fear of God and repent of our failure to genuinely fear God, you know that half, one half of the brain, according to 
those that study the brain and top scientists, was created for awe. It was created to be an awe of God. And God is wanting in these last days to restore his awe in our midst as never before. It's not an awe that negates liberty. This was not what happened with King David. When he returned after that house of Obadiah being blessed to take the ark to the tents, in Hebron, I believe it was, or was it Bethel? I forgot which now. Um, when he returned, he, every six paces, offered a bull and I think a lamb, it might be right in here. And uh, so I will just read this. And the ark continued in the house of Obadiah the Giddite three months, and the Lord blessed Obadiah and all his household. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obadiah and all that pertaineth unto him, because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obadiah into the city of David with gladness. And he's dancing with such liberty that he's just got a ephod on. And that's all that's clothing him is one garment. <clears throat> and he's dancing with all his might. And they're offering an animal sacrifice of a bullock and a lamb or something else. Every six paces all the way. And Michael, his daughter, looks out and despises him because she's standing in a mindset of merely her own self-righteousness. And so she mocks him and God cursed her so that she could not have any children. But King David was delighting in the holiness of God. That's why when you read the Psalms, it says, worship God in the beauty of holiness. That means the beauty emanates from holiness. The beauty, God is the very source of beauty. There cannot be beauty when there's corruption, but because he is holy, and angry at all corruption, and devours it as a consuming fire and jealous love, as was mentioned in the other passage. Then we can rejoice. We're worshiping the very source of goodness and a beauty that goes on forever and ever enlarges. And the only way that a person can genuinely acknowledge and perceive God as good, which means that he's ultimately trustworthy without any area of mistrust. Because anyone that is so integrous to judge corruption that is the very opposite of trust of corruption is able to be trustworthy of unlimited power and life and authority without abusing that in a corrupt way or being corrupted by it, thus indicative that God is the very source of unlimited life, unlimited power, and authority, and that aligns with the conscience, which always innately knows that for there to be good, there must be the judgment of what is evil, or what is corrupt. And the genuine fear of God is a choice to first acknowledge and totally acknowledge God and his holiness, and when we do, and we see that we cannot help but be humbled before God and in that humility and in that reverence be brought to a place of total honesty 
That is what births genuine transparency before God and genuine honesty. It births humility that drives us to honesty to be repentant of our sins. There are people teaching nowadays that you don't have to repent of your sin. When the word of God is very clear that we must confess our sins and then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. You don't think that we should have a life that is repenting daily of wrong motives of pride or whatever and keeping our garments spotless, not justifying sin and uncleanness in our lives. If you're struggling with lust, don't justify it and say, oh, I heard this charismatic teacher teach that it's okay to have these sexual releases if you're not married or whatever. Oh, really? What does the Word of God teach? It teaches that we're to bring every thought into captivity to his obedience. Christ said, even if you look on a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery already with her in your heart. Have I experienced? Lots of times I've failed. Lots of times I have failed being single until this very day. Still believe that God has a wife for me to co-labor with, and that will be a great blessing if that happens. If it doesn't happen, I'm married to the Lord. And I'm but I desire that. I desire a partner. I still because I'm very healthy and know a lot about health, like a young person, very biologically way younger than my age. But God is calling us as his people to be in a place where we we don't play unsafe with God. We'd be on the safe side and acknowledge sin instead of saying, well, maybe God doesn't think that is sin. No. We must be those that are like King David, that are honest. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. Why? Because your heart is transparent before God. And because you are willing to acknowledge your sin and truly be sorry for offending God and for doing things that dis that are keeping our own life in bondage. God's calling his people to first reciprocate the holiness of God. And when you reciprocate the holiness of God, you know that he is good. And even those before Christ came, out of that reciprocation of the holiness of God, knew that God was good. And therefore, if he was good, that he wouldn't create creatures that didn't have ultimate purpose and destiny and meeting. And therefore, if because God is perfect and good, and he obviously created us for his pleasure and his glory and for an ultimate purpose and meaning and destiny and fulfillment in our lives. Therefore, he must have the power to be able to forgive. And they knew that God was the source of forgiveness, not the animals. In Micah 6, it says that even if you gave the fruit of your womb, it wouldn't be able to cleanse you of your sin. They acknowledged that that Jesus, only God, could forgive. Yes, the animal sacrifices could cleanse the physical body, allowing the presence of God to dwell with your soul and spirit, but not to imbue it before Christ died, or to saturate your soul and spirit before Christ died. And that's the difference between the Old and the New Testament. I don't have time to get into that. But people were genuinely born again of the Spirit of God, because the Spirit could dwell with them. For it says in John 14, For you know him, for he dwells with you, and shall be in you, speaking of after the resurrection of Christ. <clears throat> and so people like Enoch and 
were born again of the Spirit. No one could have a close relationship like Enoch that was translated and others and many others that were a remnant throughout history. <clears throat> when it's talking about Israel as a nation, having a heart that will become a stone of flesh in the last days, as a nation, yes, <clears throat> they were in their own righteousness, but there was always a remnant that was born again of the Spirit of God. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked by that, but God is calling his people to return to the genuine fear of God. So I want to now go today to <clears throat> what I received by the casting of Lot, which was John 17 and Nehemiah 7. And so we're going to read some verses, first of all, and Nehemiah 7. And my God put into mine heart to gather together the nobles and the rulers and the people that they might be reckoned by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of them, which came up at the first and found written therein. And then there's a whole list of the genealogies in number seven. And then we read, And that Tershatha said unto them, that they should not eat of the most holy things till there stood up a priest with Urim and Thummim. And so they did have the stones that revealed either by um, light reflecting on them or in some way or by the casting of Lot in some system. They revealed what God's choice was when they would ask the Lord as they did, should they go up to battle, the Lord would reveal it through them using the Urim and Thummim. And we go on to hear read this in Nehemiah, which is really the main part. Now, I should tell you that in Nehemiah 7, what it is all about is the fact that they just finished building the wall. The temple had been restored, and now the wall was restored. So here is Israel. And finally, they're secure, but there's few people in the buildings at that time. And so it was Nehemiah that called them all together to basically give a consecration of everything unto God. And then in the next chapter, they celebrate the Lord with the Feast of Tabernacles, which they did not do from the days of Joshua, which means all the way through the judges, they aren't celebrating this Feast of Tabernacles, which is such an important feast. And so we read this, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up, and Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great Almighty's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with a lifting up of their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces in the or to the ground. So they lift up their hands and then they bow their heads to the ground, bending down, I'm sure, with their faces on the ground, on their knees. Also, Yeshua and Bani and Shabiah and Jamin and Archibad. And do I have to go through all those names? No. And the Levites caused the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place, so they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, and Ezra, the priest, the scribe, and the Levites, 
that taught the people said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy, neither be ye grieved. So holiness is equated with joy. It's equated with liberty. But if we do not know what it is, to bow with our faces and utter awe before God first, and to humble ourselves before God, then maybe we will end up having a lot of hype and not real joy that's coming out of the inner depths of our being from the Holy Spirit. God brings great joy. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. And he wants in these last days for his people to know a liberty out of reverence, out of humbling yourself. And yes, the people wept because they'd been through a lot. Can you imagine all the struggles they went through building this? And now it's finally built. They had the enemy always trying to attack them. with, and They had to be armed while they're still building and the hardship of the building and the perseverance. So it is in our own lives. We go through trials and tests and the enemy's attacking us. And yet at the same time, we have to do other things in our lives to persevere to the point of breakthrough. But God says, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not, for the one has no that has no children shall have more than the married wife. If we persevere in the time of testing and trial and continue to build ourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, as it says in Jude, we will prevail, and God will do miracles of deliverance and breakthrough to bring us through to the place where we experience the shining of his countenance upon us, the joy of his countenance, and reflect the joy of the Lord in our face. It doesn't mean that we're to be phony and put on a smile because Oh, if you don't smile, maybe people will think there's your self-righteousness or maybe the... No, be real. Paul the Apostle, it says of him in the writings of the early church fathers that he was very sober and serious-looking person. But when you went up to talk to him, his face lit up like a light with joy because he had the grace. He was full of grace and truth as Jesus Christ. And that's what God wants us to have. But it's first the truth, which is the reciprocation of the holiness of God, that then brings the emanation of God's grace in the joy of the Spirit of God and all the fruits of the Spirit. And I want to go on here and share, how does this relate to John 17? Because God is obviously calling his people to come into a oneness as never before in these last days that will fulfill John 17 around the world in corporate assemblies, whether small or great, that will manifest Christian community, that will manifest the glory of God in our midst. 
as I said, about the book. God is wanting a new order in the body of Christ, which is nothing less than to come under the fullness of the headship of Jesus Christ. And so we have here the book I mentioned to you, God, Headship, and Body Invasion, which you can get on Amazon. And of course, there's my other book that just came out called Afterlife Incredible Irrefutable. But let us read what it says here in John 17, the little bit that I pasted in here. And now I come to thee, and these things I speak to in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And it's related, as it is in Nehemiah 7, to hearing the word of God with a heart that delights to hear the word of God and to obey it and be doers of the word, not deceiving our own selves. So we go on to read here. I have given them thy word and the world have hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And I could spend a lot of time speaking about the word truth. It's clearly defined in my book, Afterlife Incredible Irrefutable. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. What does it say in the word of God? It says, if you continue in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It is a matter of perseverance in our walk as believers to greater and greater breakthroughs. There's going to be trials. You have to persevere through it. Then there's deliverance, another trial. And overall, there is a growth going up this way to an ultimate transition into the heavenly kingdom of God forever and ever and ever. And his kingdom is also coming down into this world and in the return, the soon return of Jesus Christ to Jerusalem, where he will set up his throne. But this verse here, the word truth, has great significance. God is truth. And there is one verse in the Bible that does say God is truth. Why is he truth? Because he is love. This love that I describe that is in two aspects. That is typified in nature in negative and positives. The negative representing the integrity of God's love that will not tolerate sin. That is severe on all corruption. That is the destroyer of corruption. Which represents, represented in the negative symbol, represents a foundation that is indestructible and immovable. If you look up the word truth in, this, in a dictionary, it says that it's that which is real or reality. And you look up the word reality and it basically means in the various dictionaries that which is unchangeable, indestructible, immovable. God is the source of reality, but the source of reality is love. Because love has this integrity to destroy corruption. And corruption 
is what is temporal and brings death. Death is something that is cut off from life and therefore goes to utter destruction. So truth is represented in the negative symbol not only as an indestructible foundation, but as the cutting off of all that is against the being of God's love. It is like a diamond glass that has no cracks in it that can hold water. The truth is symbolized, and that diamond glass symbolizes the perfect being of God's love, first in his holiness, and secondly, out of that springs the, its ultimate manifestation and the fact that God's love is so great that he humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, and suffered more than you, a mere creature, on the cross. The Bible says he humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heaven of heavens. He humbled himself enough to come and communicate with his creation. Yeah, God is that great that he can do that. If we think that God is so small that he can't do that, we have our own idolaters, wrong perception, a very limited perception of God. God communicated with Abraham in Genesis 18. Three angels came and Abraham makes a meal for them and he begins talking to one of them and addresses that one, which was the main leader, as Yahweh, which is the most sacred name for God. So Jesus Christ appeared to Abraham. And God is so great that he could love. If you were the only one created, he would still. Can you imagine the creator humbling himself more than you and suffering terribly for you onto death, outpouring his body onto death and his blood onto death so you could be cleansed and white as snow and you're going to reject this love? The opposite is that you should be in utter awe of such love that will not tolerate sin and is so great that he took the judgment upon himself for you. It should be ever fresh in you and your lives. There should always be a humbling in our hearts and a circumcision in our hearts that breaks up the hollow, the, the hollow ground by reciprocating this love, first in its integrity and then in the greatness of its mercy through a life of prayer. And so thy word is truth and God is truth because God is this love, which is the, it, it says of Israel, they've hewn for themselves out cisterns that can hold no water. And so we grasp after the temporal loves of the world and try to justify them in our lives, in our own Ambitions maybe to be even in ministry or to have something that is our own understanding and ways instead of submitting to God's ways. And we fall into the error of the church of Ephesus and lose our first love out of our zeal, out of our own self-sufficiency because we forget to break up the follow ground. And in the church of Ephesus, a little buzzer going off here. I'll just have to let it continue. And I know this is a long message. They failed when they cut the trees from the hills. They were a deep bay 
where ships could come in, but they didn't replace all the trees. And so they eroded, and now it's seven miles away and shallow, seven miles away from the city because of all the erosion. And so God wants us, when he blesses us, for us never to lose the fear of God, to become puffed up and proud, but to build and out of those blessings of the children God's given us and so on, to, to do the things that will break up the ground and plant new seeds so that we never lose out. And God wants such a oneness in these last days by bringing the assemblies of local assemblies together in such a oneness that revival will not come and go. It will ever enlarge unto the return of Christ. And that is what God is seeking, is to fulfill John 17. And he says here that we can know this joy that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He says he's speaking these things and his word that they may know this joy. Now, I will just go on in closing to finish this off. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their, their sakes, <clears throat> I sanctify myself that they, might all, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. There is going to be a great harvest when John 17 is fulfilled. And he's calling this generation to fulfill John 17, to change the order in your church services and quit getting in the way of the fullness of the headship of Christ from inhabiting your local assembly. He's calling for an order that is totally sensitive to the headship of Christ, where we're more conscious of Christ in our midst. Forget about your pre-service prayer meetings. You make your church service a prayer meeting. You get in your face before God. That's how you start your churches in this new order. And out of that springs forth songs. And the gifts of the Spirit and the leadership then speaks towards the end after having heard what the Spirit is saying through each member of the body. So thank you for listening to this message. And I appreciate your prayer support. This is the first video I've done in a long time. I usually do on audio. I have my substack, davidjamesthompson.substack.com. I have all of my site, my stuff on my website at loverealize.com. I should bring that up right now and show it to you in closing quickly. So I will do that. Just quickly want to show you my website here uh, where you can go to all the beautiful worship songs at loverealize.com and you can listen to all these worship songs here. You see they're right there, worship songs. So there's well over 100 that are high quality worship songs. So God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this message.